So we go to the Word this morning. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're continuing our series this morning, uh, not through a book of the Bible, but through our church's proposed statement of faith. And this is sort of a departure from us. Typically, we, we take a, a book of the Bible go, and go chapter by chapter, passage by passage. But as a church, we're considering adopting a confession of faith. And so the deacons and I, as we've thought about it, thought it would be suitable for us to work through it on Sunday mornings so that we as a congregation would be able to have a careful understanding just of what we're, of what we're saying we believe as we consider adopting this as our statement of faith. Um, so you'll find the section of the statement that we're considering this morning inside your bulletin. So on the bulletin insert, it's entitled, Of Repentance and Faith of repentance and faith. And this, I think, is just a really helpful and clarifying part of the statement of faith. Uh, because it gives us one answer to the question, what does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to become a Christian? Last week, we asked that question from the divine point of view. right? And we saw that to become a Christian means to be regenerated, means to be born again by the Spirit of God. That's the divine side of the equation. But what about the human side of the equation? What if your friend is spiritually seeking and wants to become a Christian and they come to you and they say, what, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to become a Christian? And this section provides a clear and helpful answer. A Christian is one who repents and believes the gospel. And so we're going to explore this morning what that actually means, what it means to come to Christ and to continue in Christ as a repenter and a believer. So I'd like to begin this morning by setting the stage with Mark chapter 1, where we're going to hear the call to repent and believe out of, out of the mouth of Jesus himself. Mark chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. 
and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that as we come to this passage and others in your word, that you would soften our hearts this morning to the call of Jesus, that you would freshly impress upon our hearts both the darkness of sin and the glory of knowing you so that it would be our joy again and again and again until you call us home to turn from sin and to turn from darkness and to turn to life in you. Turn our hearts to you this morning, Father, by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when Jesus began his earthly ministry, what was his rallying cry? We've just heard it. Repent and believe. Repent and believe, right? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, the first part of that sentence is a statement of fact, and the second part is a call to action, right? First, he states a truth. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. He announces to the world that everything the prophets had foretold, everything the Old Testament was building towards, was now coming to pass. That the hopes and fears of all the years were met in Christ, in his coming. That all the hopes of Israel for judgment and salvation, for hope and a future, everything that Israel was hoping for in terms of God actually showing up and making all things wrong right, that all this was coming to pass in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm it. Right? I am the king. This is the kingdom. And he says, in light of all that, here's the call to action. I'm the king. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian is one who follows Jesus. A Christian is one who hears his voice and answers, who, who hears, repent, and believe, and says, yes, yes. To repent, most basically, is to turn from sin, to have a change of mind about sin. To believe is to trust, to trust Jesus, to trust the word of God, to trust the good news of Jesus' salvation. The section of the confession we're looking at this morning begins by telling us that repentance and faith are, are our first and really most fundamental duties as Christians. It starts by saying this, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties, as in it's our responsibility if we're going to be Christians. We're actually commanded to do this, right? And we've just heard the command out of Jesus' mouth, repent and believe. But not only do we read that they're duties, we also read that they're graces. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit 
God. In saying that they're graces, we mean that they're not works. That repentance and faith aren't something we work up all on our own. That these are actually gifts from God. And we see this truth borne out in Scripture in, in a few places, um, and two instances in Acts. So, for example, at the conversion of Lydia in Acts 16, verse 14, after Paul is preaching the gospel, Lydia responds. And Acts 16, 14 says this, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She responds in repentance and faith, and she's, she becomes baptized. Why? Because the Lord opened her heart. Or listen to what the apostles reflected on in Acts 11, after they're hearing reports about Gentiles converting to Christ, and their, their minds are kind of blown about this. And what do they say about it? Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life the lord opens hearts the lord grants repentance when people repent and believe it's our duty to respond but as we respond and look back on it we recognize that actually was grace too that wasn't something we can look back on and say oh yeah i, I did real good Right? We look back and say, thank you, Lord, for granting me repentance, for opening my heart. So we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties, right? our responsibility before the Lord Jesus, and also inseparable graces, gifts from outside of ourselves, wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God. Okay, we've said they're duties and gifts, but, but what would that actually look like? How would that actually feel if it happened in our hearts? What do we do when we repent and believe? Well, let's keep reading. There are duties and graces whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with genuine contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. At the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. The key word in that section around which the whole thing hinges is to turn. To turn. Repentance and faith are two sides of turning. Repentance turns away from sin and faith turns towards Christ. If you were to imagine all of life as a road, right, with one direction leading towards God and one direction leading away from him, repentance and faith are a U-turn. As we turn away from the direction which would lead us away from God, we turn towards the direction that would lead us towards God. In repentance, we turn from sin. In faith, we turn towards Christ. Confession gets in now to the reasons why we would make such a, a U-turn. Why would someone hurtling at 80 miles an hour in one direction down the interstate all of a sudden hit the brakes, drive through the median, right, and, and go back the other direction? 
Well, you change direction when you realize you're not going the way you want to go. I can remember sitting in the car as a kid on a road trip. My parents took us on, on road trips a lot. And I remember sitting as, in the back as a kid, and my dad was driving, and my mom was in the passenger seat. And um, she had the big US atlas out, right, and was, was navigating. And uh, there was a number of times, maybe more times than my dad would like to admit, that my mom was saying, you know, we really should be going this way. And my dad's like, no, we're on the right road. <laughs> we're on the right road. And my mom would spend sometimes like up to an hour trying to convince my dad, we, we took a wrong turn a ways back. No, 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 we, we're supposed to be on 84. I... And we just go further and further in the wrong direction. Sometimes towards the end of the day and night's falling, right? And we're supposed to be finding a campground like two hours ago. And eventually, my dad would be forced to admit, right? <laughs> this is the wrong road. This is the wrong path. We're not going to find the campground on this road. We're going to have to go back the other direction. And that's why people repent and turn to Christ. We turn when we're convinced. We turn when we're convinced that we're on the wrong road. The confession explains that we turn when we are deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ. So we're convinced in two directions. Two things we need to be convinced of. First, guilt, danger, and helplessness on the one hand, and then of the way of salvation in the other. So on the one hand, the person who repents, the person who makes a U-turn, turns because they know they're guilty of sin. That their sin has put them in danger of death and hell, and that in their own power they're helpless to do anything about it. That's being convinced you're going in the wrong direction. So let me ask you, are you convinced of these things? Are you convinced of your guilt before God? Can you pray honestly with, with David in the words we prayed earlier? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Right? Psalm 51. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you believe that? Can you pray that honestly before the Lord? How deep is your sense of your sin before God? Is it just a superficial profession? We're really good at explaining away sin. We're really good at self-justifying in our own eyes. We must understand our guilt if we're going to turn to God. Are we convinced of the danger of our sin? Of the reality of death and hell? Why turn if there's no danger? Why flee to Christ if there's nothing to flee from? But there is danger, right? And it's Jesus himself who warns us of this danger. It's Jesus himself in Luke 12, 4 and 5. He says, I tell you this, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Jesus is concerned here to wake us up to the real danger of sin and death and hell. The wrath of God against sinners is real. It can't be explained away. When you're a kid, you need to be afraid of the road so you don't run into it. When you're a kid, you need to have a healthy fear of the water so you don't go out on the dock without your mom and drown. According to Jesus, we need a healthy fear of God because of our sin and where it might send us. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do we understand the danger of our sin? Are we convinced of it? deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and of our helplessness. Are we convinced of our helplessness? Or deep down do we believe that really we could save ourselves or talk, our, talk ourselves out of it when it comes down to it? That we can make it up somehow. Paul is pretty clear in Romans 3 and verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There is nothing we can do in our power to change the brute reality that we are condemned sinners. We are helpless. Are we convinced of all this? If we aren't, we have no reason to look for a savior. If we're not convinced it's a heart attack, if it's just heartburn, we're not going to call 911. But we should understand this. Even if you're not convinced, you're still guilty, helpless, and in danger. You just have the blinders on. You're still traveling 80 miles an hour down, down the road in the wrong direction. There's no campground to be found down here, just that the radio's cranked. A lot of people hurtle down life down that highway with the radio crank, cranked, unaware of the infinite joy that could be found in Jesus if they were just to cut the wheel, and unaware, too, of the darkness that's it's growing ahead of them. So if you're not convinced of these things, it's time to wake up. Time to wake up both to the darkness of what's ahead and to the possibility of turning around. Right? This is the hope. If we're convinced of our danger, guilt, and helplessness, we're going to start looking for an off-ramp. Right? Is there any way I can get over there and go the other direction? And, and the wonder of the gospel is that there is an off-ramp. U-turns are legal on this road and encouraged. If we're convinced of all this, we know we need forgiveness. And the promise of the gospel is that there is. Right? There is a way to safety. There is a Savior. And his name is Jesus. We looked last week at... Um, the sermon Peter preached at Pentecost, right? And we saw that when Peter preached at Pentecost, the people were cut to the heart. They became aware of their guilt, danger, and helplessness, right? Because Peter's preaching to the people of Jerusalem, and he's helping them to understand they've just crucified their Messiah, right? They've just, God has shown up and spoken to them, and they've hung him on the cross. And now he's raised from the dead, right? And he's been given all authority. And so they're shaking in their boots, right? They're saying, what? What have we brought down upon us, right? If this is true, if, if the words this, may, this man has said is true, then we are, 
deeply guilty and we are in danger and we are helpless. And so what do they say to Peter in Acts chapter two? What do they say? What must we do? What must we do? What can we do, Peter? Is there an off-ramp? Is there a way back? Is there a way to be saved? And what does Peter say? These words are like, must have been like cool water for them, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What shall we do? Turn. Repent. Make a U-turn and be saved. Right? It's possible to hit the brakes and start running in the other direction. Peter doesn't just tell them where they're running from, he tells them where they're running to, right? Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We need to hear this, right? First, we do need to hear about our sin and our helplessness. We need to know our need. And, And then what we need is hope. Then what we need is the gospel. What we need is the call to faith and baptism and cleansing and the presence of God. We need to be assured that if we turn back, forgiveness is possible. There's a way to the campground before sunset. There is a way of salvation, right? And the way is Jesus in and through his death and resurrection. In his death, he bears our sin. In his resurrection, he gives us life. By faith, we get it all, right? And we show it forth through baptism. So if we're deeply convinced of all this, if we're convinced of the danger, if we're convinced of the way of salvation, let's turn. Let's turn to him. So what would that look like? The confession goes on. We turn to God, right? Deeply convinced of all these things, we turn to God with genuine contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. Genuine contrition, supplication, contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. These words are a little bit of a mouthful. These These are big silver dollar theological words, but they're helpful to understand, okay? Uh, so let's, let's think about these words in the context of a story you know, in the context of a parable we heard Jesus tell earlier in the service. It's the parable of the the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Two men go to pray in the temple. This is Luke 18 and verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, right? So this is the very religious man. This is the one everyone expects. This is the godly one. He's, he's good, right? And the other is a tax collector. And everyone hearing Jesus tell this story knows this guy's scum, right? He's nothing. He's like the worst, the worst sinner we could possibly imagine, right? A, and a traitor on top of all that. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, not the Pharisee, is the one who shows us true repentance, real turning to God, real contrition, confession, and supplication. So contrition comes from the word contrite, and when that word is used to translate uh, the Hebrew in, in, uh, in the scriptures, uh, it's for the Hebrew word bruised or crushed or broken. Right? So an example of this would be in Psalm 51, verse 17, where we read, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Contrition is real heartbreak over sin. Contrition is the tax collector standing far off, not even daring to come close to the temple. He's so aware of how far he's fallen, beating his chest in grief. I've sinned against you, God, and it breaks my heart. Confession means to say along with, means to acknowledge, literally to say with. So when we confess our sins, we say along with God what he knows is true about our hearts. When we confess, we deal with God honestly. Confession is the tax collector crying out, to me a sinner, right? He acknowledges, I'm a sinner and I admit it. No cover-ups, no pretension, no false humility. Supplication is a humble request. It's a plea for help. It's a tax collector saying, have mercy on me. Help me. I'm helpless. I need mercy. I need grace. I need kindness that I don't deserve. Please help me, not on the basis of my goodness, but on the basis of yours. Contrition, confession. Supplication. Have, have you turned to God with genuine contrition, confession, and supplication? Have you gone to God like the tax collector in real grief over your sin, real honesty about your heart, about everything, leaving nothing out? Are you regularly leaning on his mercy, asking for forgiveness and help? Usually we think of repentance and faith as the things that start the Christian life, but they aren't things we can leave behind at the starting line. If our hearts don't continue to be softened in contrition as we grow in the Christian life, we'll learn to tolerate sin as our hearts grow callous to it. If we don't keep short accounts with God confessing daily, we'll allow the shame of unconfessed sin to pile up and our joy in Christ will shrink. If we don't regularly lean on God for grace, asking him for help and supplication, we may even start to think that we're in some way self-sufficient in the Christian life. I've quoted Martin Luther on this point before, but it bears repeating. He said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. All of life is repentance. 
so long as we continue to be tempted to sin, which will be the rest of our life in this age, we will need our hearts continually softened to God. We'll need to take the trash out daily, confessing our sin. And we'll need fellowship with God pursued constantly. That's contrition, confession, and supplication. So how far have we gotten? We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with genuine contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. And that turning again isn't just turning away, it's turning to At the same time, we turn to God with genuine contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy, at the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is is 200-year-old language, uh, almost 200-year-old language from the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, but I, I love this phrase, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Heartily, with our whole hearts. If we've been driving all day, looking for our destination, searching down all kinds of wrong roads for our friend's house, when we pull in the driveway at 9.30, starving, tired, and famished, really needing a bathroom break, we don't pull in the driveway half-heartedly, right? We don't open the door and run up to the porch half-heartedly. We don't pull up a chair to the casserole at the table half-heartedly, right? We dig in heartily right with our whole hearts because here finally is rest and relief here is food let's eat right when we finally come to realize that there's grace on offer that though the road is road ahead is dark but there is a way home a way to the table a way to life and forgiveness and freedom and rest and resurrection right And when we realize that the way is Jesus, he's the road home, we're not going to wait around, right? We receive him heartily. He's the way, let's go, right? He's the bread, let's eat. If he's the way to life, I want him. Let's go. Let's go. Well, how do we receive him? heartily receiving him as our prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king, and relying on him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. A common way of summing up who Jesus is to us, how he saves us, is by recognizing that Jesus serves as our prophet, priest, and king. And so if you think about those jobs in the Old Testament as you read your Bibles, read the Old Testament, you notice lots of prophets and priests and kings. And these are important roles for the Old Testament people of God. And they're important because they're all mediators. And to be a mediator means to stand in between. Okay? The prophets, the priests, and the kings all in some way stand between the people and God. And we need a mediator. Because, as it turns out, we're sinners and we're under the judgment of God. And so it's actually dangerous to draw near to God without someone to bring us in and to say, he's with me, she's with me, 
right? We need someone to bridge the gap. And so that was the role of the prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. But the problem, and the writer of Hebrews points this out, is that they weren't perfect. The problem is that they were sinners too. They never perfectly mediated between God and man. They were only ever placeholders pointing forward to our need of a better mediator, a better prophet, a better priest, a better king. And Jesus is that better one. He's the better mediator. So let's just think about each, each of these three quickly. So the prophets, what do they do between God and man? Well, they speak to the people of God on behalf of man, on behalf of God, right? They speak the word of God to the people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, you've got all kinds of prophets, right? But Jesus is the better prophet. Right? He's better than the prophets because he's actually God in the flesh, right? Jesus isn't a man speaking on behalf of God. He's a man who is God, right? Who showed up and walked the streets with us. Do we want to hear from God? Listen to Jesus, right? There's reason to receive Christ heartily. He's the perfect prophet. And he's the perfect priest. What's the priest's job of mediation? Well, they work in the temple, right? They make sacrifices. When the priests show up in the Old Testament, we see them killing animals and putting them on the altar. And we see them doing this because justice demands the wages of sin is death. And so the priests symbolically offered these animals to die on behalf of the people. And scripture again teaches us these sacrifices weren't ever actually enough to atone for sin. They were just placeholders. They were pointing forward to our need of a perfect sacrifice. They're pointing forward to Jesus, right? Who is both the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. Christ on the cross offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. He dies on our behalf. He's the one, ultimately, who had to die on behalf of the sins of his people. Which means that if he's a perfect priest and we belong to him, our sins are gone. Our debt has been paid and we need not fear the wrath of God any longer. Christ has borne it. We are free free to draw near to God, free to know him like we were made to know him. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Do we long to be freed from sin and death and brought near to God? Do we long for a perfect priest? Here he is, Jesus, right? Let's heartily receive him by faith. Prophet, priest, and king. The kings of Israel, again, occupy a place standing between the people, of, the people and God. They communicated the commands of God and enforced them. Right? He was an enforcer of justice on behalf of God. Those human kings did not reign perfectly. No human king ever has reigned perfectly. There's never been a perfectly just government or king except for Jesus, right? He's the perfect king. And he's reigning even now. And according to Psalm 110, he will reign until the Father puts all things under his feet. 
This is what Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. For in Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the better king, and he will reign forever. Don't we long for a perfect kingdom, a perfect glorious king? Don't we long for perfect justice, an eternal reign of peace and righteousness? Isn't this what we long for? Isn't this why we're constantly changing our hopes from one human king to another human king to another human president or senator or whoever, hoping that they might be the one? Jesus is the one. He's the perfect king. He's the better king. And he will reign forever. So do we want to be a part of his kingdom? He's coming. So run to him. Let's heartily receive this perfect king and submit ourselves to him and to his reign. We can receive Jesus with our whole hearts because he's an all-sufficient savior. As prophet, he tells us the way to God. As priest, he is our way to God. As king, he rules us and all creation for our good and his glory, and he can be relied upon, and he can be turned to. He is our U-turn. He is our way home. So let's turn to him. Let's keep turning to him. Like the tax collector, let's turn to him in genuine contrition, confession, and supplication. Like the thousands at Pentecost, let's turn to Christ in faith. First inwardly, then outwardly in baptism. Confessing our sin and trusting him with our whole hearts. And then once we've turned, let's keep turning again and again and again. Away from the darkness, away from sin and death, towards Christ. Towards the forgiveness, safety, and salvation that he offers. Amen? We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with genuine contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy, at the same time heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king and relying on him alone as the only an all-sufficient Savior. Do we believe this? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the wonderful grace you have shown us in Jesus, for the call and the invitation you've given us to turn from the darkness and come back to the light, to turn from our sin and to come home to you, to forgiveness and healing and home. We ask, Lord, that even this morning you would turn our hearts to you, that you'd grant us true repentance and true faith, and that day by day you'd call us back again and again and again, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Call us back to yourself. Give us hearts of repentance that we might grow. We long for your coming, Lord Jesus. We long for the consummation of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that as we, as we wait for the kingdom of God, that you'd prepare us to be, prepare us to live there. As we long for heaven, Lord, you would, you would be making heaven manifest in our hearts as we, 
as we become more and more conformed to your image, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Praise God from whom Jesus Christ, to whom be glory.